Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father, thanks for an opportunity on this Mother's Day to open the scriptures and to learn about what it means to be the children of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to teach us the word which you have inspired to be written. And Holy Spirit, we know, we trust, we believe that the scriptures change lives. That as you take the scriptures and apply them to our lives, our lives, our destinies are forever altered. And that includes our legacy and our lineage and our children and our grandchildren. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us the scriptures today and to make us like Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Well, uh, this is God's word and this is the only perfect thing on the earth today. Um, and as we read God's word, it perfects us, it changes us, it causes us to learn more about God and to become more like God. And I was saved, actually became a Christian reading the Bible at the age of 19 in college. Grace and I met at the age of 17 in high school. She gave me a Bible. I probably would have said and perhaps even thought that I was a Christian, but I wasn't. I grew up with a Christian mother, but I did not myself know and love Jesus. And my mom prayed for me and God eventually did answer her prayers. I think things were slow, not because God didn't answer, but because I was stubborn. Nonetheless, at the age of 19, God saved me and I became a Christian. And immediately I started reading and studying the Bible and started to see my mind change, my desires change and my life change. And what I found as well, now having had the honor of studying and teaching God's word for 28 years, is that all of God's word is true. And there are occasions that parts of it become particularly timely. I don't know if you've had this experience where you've read a section of the scripture or learned a section of the scripture, and then there are circumstances where the scripture intersects with your life in a very timely way, and all of a sudden it's more meaningful, valuable, and purposeful than it was before. And that was certainly the case for Grace and I. Uh, we were married at the age of uh, 21, and our first child arrived at the age of 25. And you can read all the stuff in the Bible about God loving us and being our father and Christians being like brothers and sisters, our family and, and the church being the household of God and all of this familial language. And then once you have your own child, I don't know if you mothers remember holding your firstborn child or your fathers remember holding your firstborn child, all of a sudden the scriptures are more meaningful than they were before. You, you realize God loves me like I love this child. And if you're a parent, you know that you love your child, you're devoted to them, you're concerned for them, you're committed to them, you wanna protect them, you wanna instruct them, you wanna direct them, you wanna correct them, you wanna provide for them, and you're absolutely devoted to them no matter what. 
And then all of a sudden, the scriptures start to make more meaningful sense than ever that God loves us with a father's heart. And so what we learn about today is that God is our father and we are the children of God. And that has some profound implications and applications for all of life. And so we start in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, learning about being the children of God. So it says this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children... And if you've been with us, you remember that as John is writing this, he grew up in his 20s as, as a young man who was Jesus' best friend, perhaps even relative. Uh, he was there uh, for Jesus' life and ministry as one of the 12 disciples. Well, fast forward at this point, Jesus has already died for our sins, risen, ascended into heaven, and it's been many, many, many years. All the disciples have passed away. John is the last living and remaining. And at this point, he's somewhere between 80 and 100 years of age. So he's an elderly man. And so he uses the, the fatherly language of my dear children. And this is the father heart of God echoed in the words of John. And here's what I need you to understand. It doesn't matter how old you are, this is your identity. And your identity informs your activity. Who you are determines what you do. And God looks at you and he says, you're my kids, you're my kids. And God loves us as I love my kids, only God's love is perfect. God loves us like grace loves our five, only perfectly. And I need you to understand that in God's sight, we're still kids. And, and, and sometimes we think of God as being old. God is eternal. What that means is God is not old. God is perhaps younger than all of us. We grow old because of sin. God never grows old. He's eternal. And he sees us as his kids. And we're the ones that need to grow. God doesn't need to grow. We're the ones that need to mature. God doesn't need to mature. And so God comes to us uh, like a father comes to a child. He adopts us into his family. He loves and invests in us. And he blesses us. And he sees us as his kids. So you need to know that you, if you are a Christian or you become a Christian today, you're one of God's kids. I want you to embrace that. Uh, because before you can parent, you need to be a child of God. And as you see God parent you, then that informs and instructs and directs the way we parent our own kids. So we have a relationship with God where he's our father, we're his kids. And as the father teaches and trains and corrects and directs and instructs us, that informs how we parent our own kids. So before we're mom and dad, we're little children. And now little children abide in him. That is ongoing relationship. And some would say that Christianity is about making a decision. Well, it's a decision to belong to the Lord, but it's also a lifestyle in relationship with the Lord. In the same way, when a couple gets married, they make a decision on their wedding day, but then they have to live life together. So when a mother gives birth to a child, that child enters this world on a day, but then is going to walk with that child every day. That's what it means to abide. That as we are adopted by God, he becomes our father. Abiding in him is continuing the relationship with him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, that's holy and without sin and altogether good, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Well, there's a lot here. Uh, first of all, he's telling us that God is our father. Secondly, he's telling us that if we're Christians, we have been born into the family of God. And that word born is incredibly important. If you ask some people, when did you become a Christian? They'll say, I was born a Christian. Have you ever heard that? No one is born a Christian. You may be born Italian or left-handed, but you're not born a Christian, okay? 
you're born as someone who is separated from God. You need to be born again as someone who's reconciled to God. We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And we need to be born again, spiritually alive to God. And this all happens through our big brother, Jesus Christ. That God becomes a man to reconcile men to God, that he lives the sinless life that we were supposed to live, the righteous life, to use this language. He died the death that we should have died to pay the penalty for sin, and he rises to give the gift that we cannot earn. Through faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, belonging to Jesus, we are born spiritually. So if you are here, morality does not save, spirituality does not save, only Jesus saves. That's the big idea. And so he's saying that God is our father, that we need to be born spiritually, and that as we are born spiritually, we are God's uh, children. And then what that means is that our lifestyle begins to change as we become part of God's family. And that we should live our life pursuing what he calls righteousness. This is holiness. This is a character rather that is patterned after the example of God so that when he returns, we won't be ashamed of his coming. Now, how many of you, when you were kids, you did something and a parent walked in on you and you got caught and you were really ashamed. You remember those? How many of you are parents and this is what you've done to your children? Uh, sometimes as little kids, we do things or children do things that are sort of secret and try to sin and hide off to the side and try to get away with something. And then mom or dad walks in and catches you right in the act. Do you remember those? I'll give you two examples from my life. Um, I was the oldest of five kids and the next child in our family was my sister, Melanie. She had long blonde hair. And I remember being a very little boy and she was a very little girl. And I decided it'd be a good day for me to give her a haircut. So I remember we're standing in front of the mirror and uh, she loved me. We're still very close. She's great. And, uh, and she had her hair in a ponytail and I had a pair of scissors and I was just getting ready to give her a post ponytail haircut right in front of the mirror. And my mom walked in just as the scissors were um, driving toward my sister's ponytail. And my, my mom walks in, Marky, she still calls me that, but you can't. Marky, what are you doing? And I said, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, I got caught. I was, I was ashamed at her coming and, and I was shrinking. I was literally like, walking away, trying to hide the scissors as a kid. I was ashamed and I shrank from her coming. Another one, my poor mom, um, I always consider myself a good child. Now that I'm older and reconsider the facts, I no longer believe that. But um, I remember one day I was outside playing and it was really dry alongside of the garage. So all of the uh, grass there was sort of dry tinder. And I was a very little boy and I wanted to know what happened with you lit a match, of course. And so, for some reason, I thought that this dry tinder next to the garage would be the best place to figure out what happens when you light a match. So I lit a match and it burned my fingers. So I dropped it, a victim. And, uh, and all of a sudden the grass started to smolder. And I thought, well, that doesn't look good. So as a little kid, I'm trying to stomp on it in my little work boots and it won't go out. So I thought, well, time to go now. You know, this could end badly. So I thought, well, I'll just get away from that. And, you know, just sort of, pretend like it didn't happen. I walk in the house and my mom, you know, mom's got that discernment. She looks at me, Marky, did you do something? I said, uh, why do you ask mom? So well, you have that look. <laughs> Apparently I, I had that look. I said, well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I might've dropped a match. I can't remember, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, it's, a fur, it's, a, it's a blurry memory. And my mom had been in a fire when she was younger and she was very terrified of fire. So my mom immediately went into a panic. So poor Deb's freaking out. Did you light something on fire? Did you, is there a fire? I was like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know. So 
so she runs outside and now fire has engulfed the side of the garage and is going up the garage. So my mom is panicked. She looks at me, Marky, go turn the hose on. So she grabs the hose. My mom is running over there. Marky, go turn the hose on, turn the hose on. So I run over, I turn the hose on, but it's not connected. Okay, it's not connected. And she's yelling, is the hose on? Yes, mom, the water is running, but not in the hose. And so my mom comes over and I'm a little boy. So I'm trying to attach the hose to the running faucet with no success whatsoever. My mom saves the day. She turns the water off, attaches the hose, turns the water on, runs over, puts the fire out. Uh, and then she looks at me and my mom gave me that look, right? That look. And what I, I was uh, ashamed at her coming, okay? And I was shrinking from her presence, right? I could just feel the wooden spoon being delivered in my direction in very short time fully deserved and earned in every way. Now, the, the point is this, what he's saying is that, that God is our father and that we should live our life that if the day uh, comes that we're alive on the earth and Jesus returns, that we're not ashamed at his coming, right? There are times that you've walked in on your children if you're a parent and you were overjoyed. You hear noise upstairs, like, what is it? I'm gonna go check on them. You walk in and they're on their knees with the Bible open and they're singing to the Lord. Just maybe that happened. But if it did, you'd be, you'd be so overjoyed, right? That's amazing. Yes, this must be the result of good parenting. Look at this child, right? Um, and so what he's saying is to live in such a way that when Jesus returns and he walks in on us, that we're not kids who are ashamed and shrinking at his coming. And the truth is, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And some will speculate that they do know. And Jesus says that no one knows the hour nor the day. And what we can't control is the day of Jesus coming, but we can be ready. That's the one thing we can control. And so the point is to live our life constantly as God's children, as Christians, in such a way that if right now Jesus came back, you wouldn't be ashamed, embarrassed. You'd be like, okay, let me explain. Ooh. I know, I know this looks bad. The reason it looks bad, it's bad. Right? I mean, it, if Jesus came back, he'd be like, hey, good to see you. Like, hey, good to see you too. That there wouldn't be shame. There wouldn't be embarrassment. That we wouldn't be like Adam and Eve seeking to run and hide from God, that we could run to God because we had nothing to hide. And the goal is to live our life in such a way, openly, honestly, um, with the Lord, that our conduct and our character is such that if Jesus returned right now, we wouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed, we'd be okay. That's the big idea of what he is um, saying. And let me speak just briefly about the second coming of Jesus. Jesus has two visitations to the earth. The first was a few thousand years ago and he came in humility. He was born to the Virgin Mary um, and he came in poverty and, and he came to a rural family. He came to identify with us. He came to defeat sin for us. He gave salvation to us, and he has ascended back into heaven. And if you saw the Lord Jesus right now, you would see him high and exalted, seated on a throne, ruling over creation, and you would see angels surrounding him, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when you think of the Lord Jesus, don't think of him as he was, think of him as he is. Don't think of him necessarily in humility, but think of him in glory. Don't see him necessarily solely in his first coming, but also consider his second coming. 
And when we see Jesus again, Revelation reveals another book that this man John wrote, that he'll come riding on a horse, that he'll make war against the nations, that he'll put down all of his enemies, that he'll bring in a kingdom of peace, that sin and death will be no more, that everyone will be filled with joy in the presence of the Lord forever, and that all human beings in the history of the world will stand before one person, Jesus Christ, and give an account. This is what Jesus says. He says that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Jesus will sit on a throne, history will come to an end, that court will be convened, and everyone will give an account to Jesus, right? Everyone, Christian and not. And the eternal results and consequences will be separation from God and punishment in hell, or reconciliation with God and blessing in his eternal kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is, we as Christians always need to live in light of the last day, the last day of life on this planet as we know it, Either uh, in this life, Jesus returns and we stand before him or we die and we go to the grave and then we're resurrected as he was to stand before him. We always need to live in light of that day. And when we stand before Jesus, we wanna live our life in such a way that we're not ashamed, that we're not embarrassed, that we're not looking at the ground, Jesus, I'm sorry, I know that was not good and I wasted so many years and I, I was bad with my money and I didn't serve you and gosh, I made a mess of that and I really hurt them. And, No, we wanna be able to say, I've I've apologized and repented. I've accepted and owned. I've been forgiven. I walked in the power of the spirit. And as a result, I'm ready to stand before Jesus. My question to you is, are you right now ready to stand before Jesus? If the doors opened up and Jesus walked in and he said, Mark, you're fired, best day ever. And he finished the sermon. Would you be able to look him in the eye and say, I'm not ashamed today. I was hoping to see you. Or would there be something in your character in your life right now that if you look Jesus in the eye, you'd be like, I'm ashamed of that. I'm embarrassed of that. I'm, I'm regretting that. And I have not yet dealt with that. Then this is the day to deal with that so that we can always live in light of his coming. That's the big idea that we are God's kids and we always need to be ready for God to walk in on us. In the same way, um, how many of you mothers, when you were pregnant with your child, you were always ready to go to the hospital. You remember that? I still remember with our first child, Ashley, we didn't know when she was gonna be born, so we got ready and we prepared. Bag was packed, put the uh, car seat in the car, car's gassed up, you know, phone is fully charged, everything is ready, the relatives are on notice, the plan is in place, and at any time, she, she could come. The result is that we were living in light of an event that we didn't know exactly when it would be, but it was so important to us that we wanted to be ready at a moment's notice. Well, similarly, we don't know when Jesus is coming, but the point is to have a sense of urgency to dealing with sin and stuff in our life so that if we die today or he should return today, that we're ready to meet him, look him in the eye. We don't have shame in his presence and we're not shrinking from him, but we're running to him, amen? Okay, number two, uh, he talks about the family resemblance. This is a long section. But he says this, 1 John 3, uh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Again, this is the Father heart of God. God tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. He tells you how much he loves you before he tells you to obey him. And parents, hear me in this. This is a parenting tip for you, that rules without relationship create rebellion. Rules without relationship create rebellion, okay? A parent that doesn't have a good relationship with a child, but just keeps giving them rules, they get rebellion. When there is a relationship and the rules come in the context of the relationship, there is not rebellion, but there's reception. 
So my kids will tell you, I, I'm a dad who I, I use sort of Bible Kung Fu on them. I, 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 I come up when they're rebelling or sinning or wanting to or disagreeing. And they will tell you the first thing I do, I put an arm, I put a hand on their back and I rub their back. Sometimes I'll give them a kiss. Some of them are taller than me. So I got to sort of bend them down and give them a kiss. And I tell I love you. Watch my, I watch my tone. I didn't always do this, but I, I learned from God's example. And he's the perfect parent. So we want to learn from his example. I love you. I care for you. I want good for you. I'm devoted to you. I want to talk to you about something. You can disagree with me. You can push back, do so respectfully. If I've got this wrong, correct me. But, but here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm Here's what I'm experiencing. I wanna talk to you about this because I really love you and I wanna help. Do you know that I love you? Do you know, okay, I know you love me, dad. You say it so much. You just kissed me for the millionth time. I get it. um, You're still touching me and rubbing. Yeah, I get it, dad. You love me. Okay, okay, now let me talk to you. So relationship then rules. Relationship then rules. Religious parenting starts with rules and really doesn't work on the relationship. God's a father who he keeps saying this over and over and over. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see the warmth in that? That's relationship. God's your dad. He loves you so much. You're his kids. He adores you, right? When you get to heaven, if God's got a desk, your picture's gonna be on it in a frame, right? He, he's always thinking about you. He cares for you. He loves you. It's relationship then rules, and that equals reception. Rules without relationship causes rebellion. That's what happens. Some of you rebelled against your parents, not because they had bad rules, but because you had a bad relationship. And the relationship is really the answer to the rules. I want you to see that example that he gives us. And this is an example that happens over and over and over and over. God's your dad, he loves you. Now he wants to tell you something. And John says, I'm your pastor, I love you. Now I wanna tell you something. It's relationship, relationship, then rules, rules. He goes on to say, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So what that means is, um, if we belong to God and he's our father, and when you get adopted into a family, you get the last name of the family. So if we adopted a kid, their last name would be Driscoll. When we call ourselves Christians, that's the family name. That's the family name. And what he's saying is that that the world, non-Christians, those who don't like Jesus and Christianity, they don't like Christ, so they don't like Christians. There's opposition to us individually because there's opposition to the whole family. He goes on to say, beloved, you get it again? Relationship, then rules, you see the pattern? Beloved, what that means is you're loved. You're loved. And then he's gonna tell you what to do. He's not saying, if you do these things, then God will love you. He's saying, because God loves you, you need to do these things. It's relationship, then rules. Children, uh, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Meaning, uh, when we're all done growing up spiritually, um, ultimately, in the presence of Jesus, in the glorified state, resurrected from death, Right, it's unbelievable the full maturation process that God has for us. How many of you, you've seen your kids grow up and they, and they grow up fast and people say, boy, they change quickly, so take photos. And then as you're a parent for a while, you're like, that's really true. That's really true. I can still remember giving my sons piggyback rides and now they can give me a piggyback ride, right? I mean, it's, it's really true. Uh, we were hauling furniture upstairs this week and I had a huge desk and my two boys were like, we got it. I was like. That's right, you could, you could carry stuff upstairs. 
that's amazing and, and wonderful. <laughs> that means I can now retire from carrying heavy things in our family. That's now a delegated responsibility. But the point is that as a parent, it's amazing to watch your kids grow up. And sometimes your kids don't have any idea of who they're becoming. They don't understand how much they are changing and growing. But as a parent, you have sort of an external objective perspective on that. What he's saying is that God's a father and God knows exactly what you're gonna look like as a mature kid. And you don't even have a concept of how amazing and wonderful that's gonna be. That's encouraging, right? It's encouraging to me because there are days I look in the mirror, I'm like, that guy needs a lot of work. And God says, well, that's why I'm here. I'm your dad and I'm working on you. And I know what you're gonna look like when I'm all done with you. And and you can't even imagine what that's going to be, what kind of character you're going to have, okay? Uh, We shall be like him. The whole point is that God would make us like Jesus. And I'll unpack this in a moment because we shall see him as he is. So God sees us as we are and we see God as he is. And then God makes us more like him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What God is trying to birth in you here is hope. You say, man, I don't like where I'm at and there's stuff in my life that needs to change. God says, I see you completed, I'm your father and I actually know how to get you there. So I want you to have hope not in you, but in me, not in where you are, but where you will be when I'm done with you. And there's hope there, there's hope there. And then he uh, continues in this section saying, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness is where there is no recognition of an authority beyond yourself. This is the fundamental American problem that we are a law unto ourselves. The days of the judges in the Bible, it says it this way, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's lawlessness. Lawlessness is not where there is no law. It's just where there is no law beyond you. You're the highest authority in your life. You determine moral right and wrong. You decide what you do and do not do, and you do not submit yourself or subject yourself to anyone or anything else, right? That's lawlessness. If you have a father who is perfect, if you have a father who is holy, if you have a father who is good, if you have a father who loves you, he gets to make the rules, right? How many of you parents, same thing in your family? Moms, how many of your kids come up and they say, that's your opinion? You say, well, that's the one that matters here. This is not a democracy, right? This is a benevolent dictatorship ruled by a queen, right? That's how it works in this house. God is a father and he is the one who determines right and wrong. He is the ultimate and highest authority. And to not acknowledge his authority, to not submit to his authority is to practice lawlessness. Uh, You know that he appeared, that is Jesus, to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Let me say this about Jesus. He didn't come just to forgive your sins. He came to take them away. This is important. Because there are some people who would say, you could just continue to sin and Jesus will forgive you. He he forgives you, but he also takes your sin away. He doesn't want the relationship to be with you and your sin anymore. He wants your relationship to be with you and him. And and Jesus does not like an unfaithful relationship where you're with him and sin. And so Jesus takes away the sin so that you can have a pure relationship with him without sin so that you can become more like him. So don't, don't forget, Jesus doesn't just forget, forgive sin, he takes it away. Um, didn't intend to share this, but just came to mind, perhaps it's the Holy Spirit. The, the, the day of Yom Kippur was the most important day of the year in the Jewish calendar. They simply called it the day. It was the day of atonement. And on that day, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would intercede and make intercession for the people as the mediator between them and their God. 
Uh, and he was a foreshadowing and a prefiguring of the coming of Jesus, our great high priest. And he would take two animals that were without blemish, showing sinlessness, and those animals would act as a substitute, and he would confess the sins of the people over the substitute, the animals. One would be put to death, and the penalty would be paid so that sin could be forgiven. Uh, that was the substitutionary animal. The secondary animal was called the scapegoat. Have you ever heard of that language? The scapegoat. And the scapegoat, they would confess the sins of the people, and then that animal would not die, it would live, and it would be sent away, and it would run out of town. And sometimes it is reported historically that they would actually chase that animal out of town, showing we want our sins taken far, far, far away. This shows the dual work of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the high priest, the God who becomes a man and mediates between us and God. And he is the Holy of Holies, the holiest place on earth, the presence of God on the earth and the place where we meet with God. And he is the substitutionary animal who pays the debt, uh, not just animal, but he is the substitutionary being who pays the penalty for our sin by dying. And he's also the scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. And all of that is here. And John was there to witness all of these activities in Jesus' life and ministry. So Jesus forgives our sin and he takes it away. What this means is there's no need for you to pick up your sin and take it with you. If Jesus has taken it away, imagine there was something horrible in your house. Let's say you found scorpions and you called the exterminator, or recently we walked outside and I found a bobcat at our house, welcome to the desert, right? Now imagine we called the professionals and they took it away. It would be very foolish for me to say, you know what, on second thought, I wanna bring that back. Anything that is deadly and is taken away, just leave it there, amen? Sin is deadly and as Jesus takes it away, leave it there. Don't go looking for it and pick it up and take it back. Okay, that's the big idea. No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either sees him or knows him. What he's talking about here is a family resemblance. Have you ever seen a family and you can automatically tell whose kids they are? You can. I remember I transferred into a Catholic school when I was in fifth grade and one of the kids in our uh, class, he was a giant. I mean, fifth grade, the kid's like 6'6 six, six or something. He ended up being a really good basketball player. I mean, the kid, I'm, you know, I'm Irish, so, you know, I'm not 6'6 six, six on a ladder, you know? And this kid's just 6'6 six, six all by himself at like 10 or 11 years of age. I mean, giant kid, he grew up to be almost seven foot tall. And I remember first day of school, we all go outside and our parents are waiting for us. I could tell who his parents were, amen? <laughs> because they were all of our parents and then these two Neanderthals <laughs> holding hands. I was like, I bet you those are his parents. And they were, right? You ever meet, uh, oh, redheaded mom, redheaded dad. Oh, guess what? It's not, it's not surprising, redheaded kid. There are family resemblances, okay? There are family resemblances. And, and what he's saying here that God is our father, that Jesus is our big brother, and that the goal of the father is to make us like our big brother so that there's a resemblance morally not just physically, morally in the family, that our character becomes more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. That's the big idea. So he's saying that God is our father, that Jesus is our big brother, that we are the children of God, and that God wants the family resemblance to be such that we look increasingly more like Jesus. And as a result, he talks about the law and lawlessness. So let me, let me, let me use the analogy of family our relationship with the law is incredibly important because God gives laws. God gives commands, not suggestions. Okay, if you read the Bible, you'll get that about God. 
God gives commands, not suggestions. But let me give you my perspective on what the Bible calls the law. These are the commands and decrees of God. Um, I believe they are good, not bad. I believe they are for our life, not death. I believe they are for our flourishing, not our diminishing. I believe God's laws are good laws because God's a good dad. So in my house, we have rules, but those rules are for the flourishing and well-being of the kids. That's all they're for. I'll give you an example. Uh, many years ago, uh, when Ashley, our oldest, was just a few years old, and I think Zach was just a little boy, we bought a house on a very, 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 very busy street right next to a football stadium and a college across from a hospital. I mean, we picked the busiest intersection in the history of the world because we're a young married couple, we're flat broke, we're in ministry, we can't afford a home. And a guy said, I'll, I'll, I'll let you rent my house. And if you do work on it, we'll split the equity. It can be a lease to own and you can buy it later. So I took the deal. We did a lot of work on this very old hundred year old craftsman style home. We'll pull in. We literally too live next to a, a drawbridge. So I've got a drawbridge, I've got helicopters going overhead, a hospital next door, a football stadium next door, and a college. This is where we live, right off of a floating bridge freeway with the on and off ramps. Okay? So I couldn't, I mean, couldn't have picked a, a worse place to live, I apologize. And, uh, and, and, and as soon as we moved in, the kids were like, I'm gonna go out and play. I, I was panicked. You can't go out and play here. Like there are cars going 100 miles an hour, there's a helicopter, there's a boat, there's drunk college students, uh, there's football fans, there's a freeway, like you can't go out and play. So what did dad do to the yard? What do you build? Or if you're me, you pay a guy to build a fence. And so um, I paid a guy to build a big fence, a high fence that the kids couldn't get over and no one else could get over. And the whole point of the fence was, I love you, but if you get to the other side of it, there's danger, you're going to get hurt, maybe killed, maybe killed. God's laws are like a fence for God's kids. You get that? Each one of God's laws is like a plank in the fence. And what God is saying is, don't go over there. That's where kids get hurt. Stay in the yard. If you don't think that God is good, then what you think is he makes laws, rules, and he puts this fence together, each picket being one of his rules or laws, and he's trying to keep me from enjoying myself. He's trying to keep me from my freedom. He's trying to keep me from experiencing the fullness of life. So we try to pick the lock or hop the fence or we're those lawless kids who ignore God's laws. And as soon as you do that, you realize it's dangerous over here and this is where you get hurt. And so God gives us his law so that as his kids, we can go outside and play in the yard. And, and what I observed too, I did let my kids out to play and I observed them before I had the fence up. They didn't use the whole yard. They were scared to go near the sidewalk, scared to go near the fence. They, they really stayed close to the house. As I put the fence up, the kids actually explored and enjoyed and used all of the yard. God's laws are like a fence to keep God's kids safe. And kids who know their dad realize it's not good to go over there by disobeying God because that's where the kids get hurt. Okay? And this is where the family resemblance comes in where Jesus is our big brother and we realize he never hopped the proverbial fence. He never sinned. He never broke one of the father's house rules or biblical laws. He didn't do that. That Jesus was fully obedient and that God loves us and we're his children. And as Jesus is our big brother, God wants to make us more and more like him in character. That's the family resemblance. And lawlessness is hopping the fence and disobeying your dad, not following in the example of your big brother, Jesus. And the result is not only does it break God's heart, it also harms you. How many of you have hopped God's fence and you realized that's not a safe place to be? 
Well, God says, don't do that. It's because it's not good for you. And he loves you and God's good and his laws are good. Now this raises a question. Uh, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This raises a question and that is, is it possible for a Christian to live a perfect life that is sinless? The theological doctrine is called perfectionism. In first glance, that's what it seems to be saying. That the real Christian doesn't sin anymore. Now, at first glance, true or false, it sort of gives that intimation in appearance. It does. The first time I heard this, I was a brand new Christian in college. It was around 1990, I'm that old. And this street preacher came out, and I don't have anything against street preachers as long as they say things that are true and real. And this guy failed on both accounts. And so he showed up with these big billboards and screaming and yelling at people and big megaphone and all the college kids gather around him. And what he, he quoted this verse and he said, real Christians don't sin. And all of you are sinners, so none of you are Christians. And somebody asked the question, so, so you're not a sinner? He said, I have not sinned. And he named a date like March 14th, 1972, like date and time. And he said, I saw this guy, I think like her name was Tammy in hot pants and I thought something I shouldn't. But since then he said, I've not sinned. And I was like, well, that was weird. And, uh, and I remember just, I, I, I remember the look on my face was probably like a beagle that heard a whistle. I was like, what? Like, I've never heard this before. This guy is literally telling a group of college students he's yelling at through a megaphone that he's not done anything wrong in 20 years. Well, and their first response was, we think yelling at us is wrong. And so uh, there's this big debate that ensues and he kept defending himself saying, I am without sin. I have no sin in my life. I've not sinned in almost 20 years and real Christians are like me. I remember as a brand new Christian thinking, no, I think Jesus is the one without sin, not you. And that our goal is not to become like you, but to become like him. And the way we become like him is we acknowledge that we're not like him and we need him, that we're sinners who need a savior. And so this guy's arguing and arguing and arguing. I thought, well, this is really weird. So it got me studying this verse. I remember going back uh, uh, to my dorm or wherever I was living at the time and reading this. And, and as I was looking at 1 John, I wanna share with you something that God shared with me when I was perhaps 19 years of age. And that's two sections in 1 John. Um, when you drove here, you drove here in a lane and the lane had markers on each side. So don't, don't drift to the right and don't drift to the left, stay in your lane. First uh, John gives us the, the markers for the lane that we're supposed to drive in of righteousness as we venture forth toward the kingdom of God. Um, some of you are perfectionists. You're gonna veer to the right. Some of you are more permissive and you're going to veer to the left. Okay. Um, those of you who are perfectionists, you want to be perfect, you try to be perfect, you're highly disciplined, you're incredibly sometimes organized, you're very efficient, right? If you own a label maker, that's you, okay? Like you, you like everything in order, you like it really tidy. Some of you are very disciplined people. I have people that I know, they count every step they take on their phone, every calorie they eat, every minute they sleep, and they're always trying to maximize their performance and they're very efficient and annoying. And, 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 and they're perfectionists. And they hold themselves to an impossible standard. When they meet it, they tend to get arrogant. And when they don't meet it, they tend to get depressed so they don't have a real enjoyable life. 
Furthermore, if you're in relationship with them, they tend to hold you to the same standard and they become very sort of condescending and critical. Oh, that, you did that wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was, I know, I know, I know, I'm not Jesus, you know, I know. Um, and, and they hold you to an exacting standard. Um, for those of you who are more perfectionist, he spoke to you in 1 John chapter 1, hear this, uh, verse 8 and verse 10. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nobody could say, I'm perfect. I did everything right. I didn't make any mistakes in thought, word, or deed, or motive. First John chapter 1, verse 10, he says, if we say we don't have sin, we say that God's a liar. Okay? So for those of you who you're perfectionists and you ride the right side of the lane and you're just always trying to be perfect, what he's saying is, you're not. You're not. Give yourself a little grace. Give others a little grace. Realize that Jesus died. He got it right. And he died because you got it wrong. Okay? That's the verse for you. Now, some of you are more permissive. You're going to veer to the left side of the lane and that's where you're gonna drift and cross. Those of you who are more permissive, you're like, well, nobody's perfect. Uh, Jesus died for sin. You know, just do what you want. God loves us, he's, we're, he's our dad, we're beloved, live it up, it's a blank check, do what you want, okay? And this verse is for you. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. What he's saying is, if you're a permissive person who makes a lot of excuses for sin in your life, you don't have any reason or excuse to continue in sin that the true child of God can put that sin to death. Since Jesus died for your sin, you could put that sin to death and you don't need to make excuses anymore. You need to make changes. You see these two? I'll never forget, it was some years ago. Um, I was invited to go speak at a church and I always pray about the invitations and I went to speak and I felt like I was supposed to go and I landed and literally the pastor's son, grown man who himself was a pastor, he asked me this verse. He said, you know the real reason I brought you here? I said, why? He said, because uh, I want to know if I'm a Christian. I said, well, you're a pastor and a pastor's son. I don't know if I needed to fly here to answer this. Seems like someone else could have taken care of it, but okay. And he, he, he literally brought me to this verse. He said, the Bible says that a real Christian doesn't sin anymore. You know what he was? He was a perfectionist. He was worried that every time he said or did something wrong, that God would no longer love him, would, would, would take his affection from him and that he was doomed and damned to hell. So he lived in this constant fear that if he wasn't perfect, that he was doomed. And I said, no, 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 Jesus was perfect and Jesus is your righteousness. And I took him to 1 John chapter 1, verse eight and verse 10, that nobody is perfect, that you're never going to be perfect in this life, that perfection is the goal that we're shooting for, but there's no athlete that throws a strike every time or hits a hole in one. There's no accountant who never makes an error in their figures. Perfection is our goal, but it's not a reality that we attain to in this life. It's a reality that God by grace allows us to attain in the life to come in our glorified perfected state as we're made like Jesus. And then, and so he, he literally started crying. He said, that's amazing. So, so I don't have to be perfect? I said, no. In fact, Jesus is your perfection. And as you receive God's love and you become more like Jesus, you'll see progress in your life and your goal is progress toward perfection. But in this life, you will not experience perfection. And then I preached and I remember coming off the platform and I was talking with people and I had a woman come up with her husband and her boyfriend. 
if, if that sounds weird to you, because it is, okay? <laughs> she came up to me and uh, she said, uh, she, she literally said, she said, this is my husband and this is my boyfriend and we're having problems. <laughs> and I thought, this, this shouldn't have snuck up on you. You should have seen this coming. And she said, uh, my husband thinks that we should have an exclusive relationship, but I don't agree with him. I said, hmm. I said, uh, are you guys Christian? She said, well, I'm a Christian. My husband's a Christian. And I said, well, how do you resolve this? She said, well, Jesus loves me no matter what I do. And my husband loves me no matter what I do. So it shouldn't matter what I do. I said, yeah, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't, if Jesus loves you, you should want to have a faithful relationship with him. And if your husband loves you, you should want to have a faithful relationship with him. For them to say, we love you and we want a faithful relationship with you. And your response to be, I don't need to be unfaithful. You don't understand the relationship, okay? Now what she was, she was permissive, right? The man who invited me, he was perfectionist. What I told her was this verse, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And what they're talking about here is a lifestyle that never changes. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Like, ma'am, you may say you know Jesus, but if you don't wanna stop sinning and start living in a faithful relationship with him and others, you don't really know him. You've not really met him, amen? Does that make sense? How many of you are more perfectionists? You tend to the right. How many of you are more permissive? You tend to the left. God puts both in place. He puts both in 1 John to keep us moving forward, not perfect, but progress toward perfection, becoming like Jesus, bearing the family resemblance and character. So then he closes with this. He talks about two families in 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Again, little children. Do you get it? Relationship, then rules. Love, then obedience. Acceptance and approval, then expectation. You get that? And this is so important. This should inform all of our relationships. We should start with one another. I love you. I want good for you. I'm committed to you. Start there. Start there in your marriage. Start there in your parenting. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm devoted to you. And now here are some things that I want to talk to you about. But our relationship is secure. And as a result of our secure relationship, we could talk about some things that are important. Little children, let no one deceive you. And there's lots of deception. There's always false teaching that goes out that basically says, it's okay to sin. It's okay to rebel. Um, God's a loving father. He's very tolerant and permissive parent. And he doesn't really care about conduct and behavior. And that's not true. Whoever practices righteousness, and this is not just adherence to a list of qualities. This is following in the example of God. So what's Jesus like? Righteousness is being like him. So it happens in relationship. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So let me say this, Jesus is a normal person. The rest of us are abnormal. <laughs> Jesus is the way we're supposed to be, okay? So, so the problem is we'll find somebody and we'll try to be like them. But, but the truth is Jesus is the way we're supposed to be. We, we were supposed to be without sin. We're supposed to be obedient and compliant to God's will, word, and ways, and we're not. So if you're trying to figure out what, is, what should I be like? Who should I be like? We all have our heroes and our mentors, but ultimately for the Christian, it's like, you know what? Jesus is righteous. He's normal. The rest of us are abnormal. 
He's righteous, the rest of us are unrighteous. He's obedient, the rest of us are disobedient. Who do I wanna be like? I wanna be like Jesus. Um, Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Here's two families. Jesus told us in John, I think it's chapter eight. He said, your father is the devil and he's a liar and the father of lies and all he does is lie. So God's a father and then Satan is like a fake father who also has a family. And it's like two families are at conflict through the history of the earth. And our father tells us the truth and Satan is the father of lies. And God wants to lead us into life and Satan wants to lead us into death and, and God wants us to obey him and, and Satan wants us to be a law unto ourselves. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He continues, the reason the son of God, there's Jesus, the big brother language, right? God's father, we're the children of God. The devil is against us. He's a false father with a, a deadly family that's filled with lies and deception. Jesus, the son of God, our big brother comes to destroy the works of the devil. Not just so that we can manage sin, not so that we can hide sin or excuse sin, that we could tolerate sin, that we could put sin to death because he destroys the work of the devil. That's what our big brother Jesus does. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, and I wanna come back to that, so make note of that, abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What he's saying is when you meet the God of the Bible, you begin to change internally. That leads to change externally. That culminates in change eternally. That's what happens. Change begins internally, starts to manifest itself externally, and it continues eternally. That's what Jesus does. And in the next section, by uh, this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. True or false, it'd be nice to know what bucket you're in, right? He's saying, Here, here's two families, the children of God and the children of the devil. You say, well, I'd, I'd like to know which one I'm in. It has big implications forever. Right? We're talking you know, God's children, eternal life, the devil's children, eternal death. How do you know which you are? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What he's talking about here is two families, uh, the family of God and the family of the devil. And what he's talking about here is what I'll call the equivalent of like a paternity test. Right? What, who's your father and what's your family? Now, when they take a paternity test, they're trying to find markers and evidences. Yes, there is, uh, there is a correlation between you and your father. So we know what family you are in and the paternity test confirms or denies who your father is. Here, the paternity test is uh, practicing righteousness and loving other Christians. That's the paternity test. So the question I would have for you is, uh, what changes has God made in your life? Do you say you're a Christian? If you say I'm not a Christian, well then let me just be very offensive, but clear, um, you're children of the devil. You say, I'm a very nice person. You're a very nice child of the devil. I'm a very good person. You're a very good child of the devil. I'm a lot nicer than you. You're a lot nicer than me, child of the devil, okay? I'm not gonna disagree with any of that. I will just continually return to my initial point. And here's why I tell you that, because uh, the gospel is offensive in an attractive way. 
The good news of Jesus is offensive in an attractive way. We live in a world where, where you're awesome and everybody else is awful and you're a victim and everything in your life is not your fault. And the Bible says, actually, we have a sin problem and it separates us from God and one another. And God can't just change the world. He needs to start by changing us. Okay, that's, that's God's plan. And so I want you to know that if you don't know the Lord Jesus, you're a child of the devil. Now, I love you, I'm worried about you, and I was a child of the devil until I was 19 years of age. And I considered myself moral and spiritual, most likely to succeed student body president, four-year letterman, man of the year, moral, more of a perfectionistic, devoted, rule-keeping, very you know, accomplished for my age and circumstances, child of the devil. And then I realized that I'm a sinner and I'm living life apart from my father and I don't love Jesus, my big brother. And I don't love other Christians as well. So that's the paternity test. The, the true Christian, they meet God and then they begin to change and they become more and more like their big brother Jesus and they tend to show forth the family resemblance. The result is that they practice righteousness, meaning your character is changing. If you've met Jesus, here's what you've experienced, change. Amen. The way you think, it's change. You say, I used to think like this, now I think like that. Your desires start to change. I used to really love this and now I'm like, I don't wanna do that anymore. Your desires change, your actions change, your lifestyle begins to change. Practice righteousness and you love your brother. You start to love other Christians. You wanna to get to know Christians. You wanna pray together. You wanna to get in groups. You wanna study the Bible together. You wanna to talk about what God's doing in everybody's life. And just like Ashley was our firstborn, and then Zach, and then Calvin, and then Alexi, then Gideon, as a new child would be born and we'd bring them home, all the other kids would love them and welcome them into our family. And as people become Christians, we welcome them into the family of God as they're born again, and we love them and we share God's love with them. And we operate as a big family where God is our father, Jesus is our big brother, where we wanna do right by one another and where we're marked in our relationships by love for one another. And let me say this, I didn't intend to share it, but I just thought of it. It was perhaps illegal to call someone brother in the first century. Uh, some years ago, I jumped on a plane and was studying in Greece, Israel, Turkey, and then went and met with uh, a scholar who um, actually taught for a while at the Tyndale House, I think it's at Cambridge, and he's an expert in first century Roman culture, and we were having a conversation over a cup of coffee, and uh, he said, did you know it was illegal in the first century to call someone brother or sister that was not a biological relative? I said, I did not know that. He said, yeah, because all of the family land inheritance was tied to your paternity, so, you know, the family would have a piece of land and that was usually their business where they would work as farming and such. And it would be handed from generation to generation to generation to generation. So keeping a real clean family genealogy was really important because there was inheritance rights. Like we just saw Prince passed away, apparently doesn't have a will. And so now there's 700 people saying that they're his siblings and they're all petitioning for his estate, right? Um, that kind of thing happens if you have resources and you don't have clear delineation for who your family is and who gets your assets and resources, then when you pass away, there's a big legal fight and challenge over who gets all that was yours. So in that day, it was perhaps illegal to call someone a brother that was not a biological relative. And what happens is when you become a Christian and God is your father and Jesus is your big brother, your, your identity is so radically reshaped that your family still matters to you, but the family of God also matters to you greatly. The church is a big deal. And so the first century, Christians start calling one another brother and sister, which was perhaps illegal. 
How many of you have had that experience where you love Jesus, they love Jesus, God's your father, God's their father. They're not family by birth, but by new birth. They're not family by blood, but they're family by the blood of Jesus. And they actually feel closer to you than biological relatives. That happens in the family of God. That's happening in the family of God. And so when you have a situation like mine, where your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters all meet Jesus, it's like a double blessing because your family by birth is also your family by new birth. Your physical family is also your spiritual family. But for those who don't have physical family, you still have spiritual family and God is your father and Jesus is your big brother and, and, and men are like fathers and women are like mothers and, and brothers are spiritual in nature and sisters are spiritual in nature. And this is all the goodness of the family of God. And it all happens, he says, um, if God's seed is in you, this will be my final point. There's always a correlation between a seed and what it produces. So, okay, work with me. We take an apple seed, we plant it in the ground and water it. Eventually we get an apple tree. tree. Okay. Take a cherry pit, plant it in the ground, give it some water, sun, and time. Eventually you get a cherry tree. Okay. Um, take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, put it in someone's soul, and eventually you get someone who looks more like Jesus. That's what the Bible calls fruitfulness. That an apple tree produces apples, that an orange tree produces oranges, that a cherry tree produces cherries, that a Christian produces righteousness, life change. And it's the life of Jesus that comes in. That's the seed that he's talking about. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus starts to take root in your life. And all of a sudden there's the fruit of a changed character in relationship with God. And I want you to understand that this is the fullness of the Christian life and it continues throughout the course of life and it continues even after this life. But it starts with beloved. You have a dad who loves you and he puts this life of Jesus in you so that the character of Jesus starts to flourish through you. And the evidence of that character is love for God, love for Jesus, love for one another and hatred for sin, which separates us from God and one another. Father, thanks for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today on this great Mother's Day. Lord, I pray for us all, but particularly the moms today, that they would know that, that they are children of God, that as they tend to their own children, be they young or old, um, that these women are still your daughters. They're your kids. Lord, thank you that as we read the scriptures, we understand your heart. Your heart for us is the same as a mother toward her children or a father toward their children. It's a parental heart. Lord, I thank you so much that you tell us who we are before you tell us what to do. You don't just yell at us to change, but you change us and invite us to change in relationship with you. Uh, Lord, I pray if there are any here that do not know the Lord Jesus, have not been born again, that today they would give their sin to the Lord Jesus, that they would accept your adoption, Father, into the family of God, that they would leave here as a child of God in Jesus' good name. Amen.